Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 202 is recorded live May 27th, 2014. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the west side of the state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Glad to be here again. And also joining us this week in the same room as Mac and myself, so we prove again we're not the same person. We have Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? We're all here together, and I'm doing fine. And the world didn't end. Believe that. Well, that was pretty cool. So, uh, again, we're apologize for people who are trying to get into the chat room, and we're not there. We'll have to come up with a solution for that, but I think we've dealt with our recording problems. You may be hearing some sound at distance. It's a warm day, and we got the window open. Uh, we'll try and edit that out, but you know, I'm not going to complain about the weather. This is perfect. Some post-Memorial Day weather, as you would expect it to be, and there was some diving to be done, but before we do that, let's go ahead and jump on into the news. <laughs> And let's see, the first one up is we have Cousteau's grandson, uh, the legendary sea explorer Jacques Cousteau, his son Fabian, is getting ready to do his plunge for 31 days underwater. This marks the 50th anniversary of Jacques Cousteau's Conshelf 2 mission, and that was where the explorer spent uh, 30 days in an underwater habitat. Uh, he's saying that Mission 31 is an epic 31-day mission where we'll go from taking a group of six people to live and work underwater in the world's only undersea mining laboratory for 31 days. Cousteau says spending time underwater in close quarters with other others teaches important lessons on land and in space. The underwater exploration will take the, uh, place off the coast of Key Largo, Florida, and will examine ocean pollution and the decline in biodiversity. Cousteau will be tweeting with his team from the Aquarius, which he calls the world's only undersea research laboratory. I don't remember when his dad did it. 50 or, years ago. 50 years ago. I That's why. The, I was in the Red Sea. And yes, I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> this venture this time has a lot of real good support. Uh, the Ocean Elders Organization, which includes Richard Branson, Sir Richard Richard Branson, Sylvia Earle, uh, you know about her, yeah, Jim yeah. Soup, uh, Jackson Brown, Neil Young. Uh, they're all assisting in this project and to raise awareness, provide VIP visits to Aquarius during the Mission 31. It, it's quite interesting. They were talking about comparing it with the old days. It was an interesting item it had about it that I didn't realize. Um, when my grandfather Conshelf 2 mission was completed, he produced an Academy Award winning documentary, World Without Sun. I don't know if you guys have seen that one no, or heard, heard about it. No, heard of it. From that aspect, talking about the film... Uh, he received criticism rooted in the disbelief of how he captured the mind-boggling underwater scenes. And this time, to avoid any controversy like that, they're using the latest camera technology and they're going to be able to show the world every single second of Mission 31 in unedited, real time, and he believes it's really going to shock people. They talked about that we've explored less than 5% of our ocean's realms and there's so much to be discovered, you basically won't believe what you see. Now, are they saying if it's going to be televised? I mean, it, it, it's live, so it must be internet then? He talked about using Skype. And it's going to be available for presentation to classrooms and schools during this period. So it's going to be 
quite adventurous and quite in-depth on what they're doing. Look forward to it. How Look, deep are they going to be? 63 feet. 63 feet. New figure by the church, 60 minutes, 60 feet. So dive. they're definitely in saturation. Yeah. Not based on depth, but on time. Navy dive table, 60 feet, 60 minutes. So how many weeks again? <laughs> <laughs> 31 days. So 31 days. How, how long do you think it's going to take them to come up from 60 feet after being saturated for 31 days? I guess once you're saturated, you're saturated. Yeah. So there's probably a special set of tables just for that. Okay, the next one up is we have Underwater Waves are Earth's Lumbering Giants. They talk about how terrifying a 70-foot wave can be above water. They said underwater waves that height are seldom noticed, but they can rival skyscrapers in height and measure more than 100 miles wide. They imperil submarines and disrupt operations offshore at oil platforms. They have been photographed by astronauts in orbit, and they have been cursed by sailors. They say they are the lumbering giants of the sea, according to MIT oceanographer Thomas Peacock, who studies them. He says such waves roll around the planet, but we only see a little glimpse of them uh, because we live above the surface. They said the, uh, the waves take the same shape as their white-capped cousins on the surface, uh, but a typical surface wave is one to two feet high, with the run-of-the-mill internal wave measures 15 to 30 feet out at sea. Larger as it gets close to shore, like the wind itself, the waves are both ubiquitous and untutored eye to the invisible. So the whole ocean is filled with them. The waves move at six to seven miles an hour, but the leisurely pace conceals their power. Uh, submarines during World War II knew to avoid the Straits of Gibraltar, famed for its internal waves. Uh, says Dave uh, Farmer, uh, physical oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. In the 80s, Soviet submarines smashed in the bottom of a container ship, presumably because the underwater internal wave tossed the sub as if it was a bath toy. I found the part that they talked about. Mm -hmm. Scientists made the first measurements of internal waves breaking at a crucial spot in the Pacific. About 200 miles north of Samoa, huge volume of seawater equal to 35 Amazon rivers. Barrels through a narrow underwater channel and makes its way to the depths of the northern Pacific. You know, 35 Amazon rivers, that's got to be a little fast. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty pretty powerful there. Beat the hell out of the current in St. Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, th we think we're holding on. Well, they were saying that that uh, equates to an 800-foot internal wave. An 800-foot. I mean, that's phenomenal how big that would be. Yeah, mm -hmm. can you say tsunami? And that's going on all the time. So yeah. they, they call that the, the nozzle in Samoa. It must be true because it's on the internet. Exactly. <clears throat> Bullshit! <laughs> Only the uh, smaller ones, uh, they say, continue out to sea. Even those can be some 450 feet high. Taller than the Statue of Liberty, uh, the team has built a 16-foot-long model of the bottom of the South China Sea and immersed it in a rotating tank almost as wide as a basketball. They recreate the tides by pushing water into the tank to and fro from wedge-shaped paddles. So it's, it's, it sounds like the, uh, if you've ever been to a wave pool, what they're doing there. They said the rotation tank simulates the spinning of the earth. The equipment, the largest ever in a laboratory to study internal waves, showed that researchers that the big waves were spawned by water sloshing around the entire underwater ridges. Are we talking a new sport here? Underwater surfing? There you go. Mm. Yeah, you'd have to have a newt suit or something for that. So these low-profile waves are absolutely key for understanding climate change. Yeah, they didn't know they existed, but they're key to climate change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, that sounded like I'm a disbeliever. <laughs> I believe everything scientists tell me. Well, it, if, so we go from <clears throat> bullshit. So we go from underwater waves to underwater lake. Uh, what they're uh, let's see, sitting in a submersible 650 meters beneath the ocean. Uh, 
They said the sub reached the bottom and the pilot was able to adjust, neutral, new, uh, adjust to a neutral buoyancy so that the vehicle hovers literally weightless in water. Uh, brine, God, that's a long way to get to what this whole point was. The brine pool, it's a brine pool is what he's talking about, the bottom of the ocean, was first discovered by a Navy survey in the 1980s. It is an upwelling of highly saline water with a density that makes the, the, it poorly miscable with the ocean around it. This means the brine sits heavily on the seafloor, acting for all the world like a terrestrial lake. The small brine waves lap up against its shoreline, animals skitter across its surface. They said it looks surreal. Well, can you imagine, you know, if there are underwater or underground rivers, that if there were springs, huge springs in the ocean, that you'd have freshwater pools mm -hmm. or freshwater lakes in the ocean until they mixed with the salt water and became salty. Well, just like the cave diving we've been looking at, some of the pictures. Oh, yeah. That's where you have the change in the water densities, mm -hmm. both for temperature and for salinity. And it's, well, you've seen it out there in thermoclines. Yeah, yeah. You get you, the shimmering effect, and that's yeah. Yeah. quite interesting. Bit, you bit. can actually see the thermocline sometime with yep. the clarity of the water changing instantly as you can pass through it. And so they've collected some mussels at several different sites along the beach, and then they're sampling uh, some of the brine at the center uh, for it to be analyzed. Looks like whoever was driving Alvin was drinking that day. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's where... Uh, they say that's the shoreline. Makes me wonder what the Navy was doing at that particular time that they found it in 1980. Hmm. Nothing at all. Nothing. And then this... Not quite scuba diving, but we have an ancient fish lizard graveyard discovered beneath the melting glacier. Scientists have found 46 specimens from four different species of extinct ichthyosaurs. That's easy for you to say. It wasn't easy. Ich ichthyosaurs? I support it. These creatures, whose Greek name means fish lizard, were a group of large, fast-swimming marine reptiles that lived during the Mesozoic era, about 245 million to 90 million years ago. I like how precise they get on the how long ago it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and climate change, we've been here a couple thousand years so far, you know, recorded history. Yep. And here they can't figure between 90 and 245 million? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I'm that's... that's... Where's, that, where's that song, Monkey's song? I'm a believer? Yeah. you yeah. got to trust the scientists. <clears throat> Bullshit! <laughs> so 90 million. So, like, if you double that, that's 180 million. So you almost triple it. So that's, that's like a huge range, statistically. Yeah. I think weathermen are more accurate. The newly discovered skeletons are, are from both embryos and adults. The creature likely killed during a series of catastrophic mudslides were preserved in deep-sea sediments that were later exposed by the melting glacier. The researchers said in the study uh, that was published uh, May 22nd, the Journal of Geological Society of American Bulletin, they said the ichthyosaurs had tornado, tor tornado, torpedo-shaped bodies with vertical flippers and long snouts with teeth. They look like dolphins today. Let's see, then the Steinsbeck and his team found the early crustaceous specimens, which are 150 million to 100 million years old, near the Tyndall Glacier in uh, Torres del Paine National Park in Chile. As the glacier melted, the rock containing the fossils became exposed. Uh, very few of the ancient reptiles have been found in South America before. Only a few remnants of rib cages and vertebrae have been found. The largest ichthyosaur skeleton unearthed in Chile measures more than 16 feet long. Scientists were extremely well... Scientists were... They were well-preserved. The skeletons were well-preserved. 
Some even retain soft tissues. Searchers also found fossilized embryo inside a female specimen. They assigned the fossils to the family, and I'm not even going there. The fish lizards probably hunted in the underwater canyon near the coastline, pursuing a diet of squid-like animals and fish. Occasionally, there would have been mudflows that cascades into the water like an avalanche, where searchers think the mudflows killed the ichthyosaurs. They likely became disoriented and drowned, getting sucked into deep sea where the bodies were entombed in the sediment and the researchers sat. Okay, I think I think enough of that article. I still like the part where they talk about global depletion of oxygen in the oceans. Now, nowadays, it's our fault. Back then, it was due to volcanoism. No, no, wait a minute. I didn't take that much science in college. But water contains two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen, right? In every molecule of water. So how could there be more oxygen or less oxygen in a molecule of water? Now you're getting technical. Yeah, I, I think there's... Well, because you get the water itself, which water is H2O, but then I think you've got... You do have suspended oxygen and nutrients in the water, which is what the... When a, when a fish is breathing and it goes through its gills, it's taking that. So it changes from water to something else. No, the, the water's still there. It's <laughs> the, you're getting these the uh, dissolved oxygen. But oxygen's lighter than water. It would float. And yeah. come to the surface. Well, I remember when we had fish tanks, that was one of the, squirrel. the things that... Yeah, squirrel. Distraction. Uh, was the... Is, is where did... You know, where does that oxygen exchange happen? And I, and I think that's still one of the things that they're, they're working on today. I mean, you've got a lot of your... Because uh, I think the oceans create most of your oxygen. And you have your uh, aquatic plants, the... Uh, Somebody's going to catch me on this one. It's not the, you get the, the animals, uh, the algaes and, and stuff, are, I think, what's creating a lot of your oxygen. I thought it was by the bubblers that the guys put in under the docks to keep under them the, freezing. And, and that's, where all our, that's where all our air comes from. I thought it was fish farts. There you go. That's probably a lot of methane in that, though. I don't know. Well, maybe that's what they've got in this camera. ship truck camera was found underwater after two years of the photos intact. The camera was lost on a shipwreck in the west coast of Vancouver Island two years ago, and it has just been returned to its owner with a memory card and images intact. Vancouver artist Paul Burgoyne lost the camera in 2012 when his boat, the bootlegger, was shipwrecked in a 500-kilometer voyage from Vancouver to his summer home in Tallahassee, British Columbia. His camera and treasured photos went down with the ship. That just shocked me, getting the camera or the photos back. That's really quite wonderful. Two years on, early in May, uh, the Bramsfield Marine Science Center University students, Telia Osler and Bo Daughtery were conducting research dives with the BMSD Diving and Safety Officer Sabor Gray of Angular Point, British Columbia, when they discovered Burgoyne's camera 12 meters down. Let's see, they were using a Lexar Platinum 2 8-gigabyte memory card. Good. They're, uh, I think, put that in there like a Timex. Takes a licking. Keep on ticking. Yeah. Mm. That's good advertisement. Yeah, sure finally, is. they normally they don't tell you what <laughs> card it is. I'm glad we can find it out. They post the online portrait she found among the photos in hopes of finding the owner. Luck would have it, a member of the uh, Bramfield Coast Guard Station who had rescued Burgoyne when he was shipwrecked recognized him, posting in the center of the photo where he's due to be reunited with his, fo- his uh, photo soon. I have a new respect for, you know, these electronics, Burgoyne said. You throw most of it away every two years. But that little card is am- is amazing bit of technology. Burgoyne said memories of shipwreck came flooding back after being told Wednesday night that his camera had been found. That would be a very pleasant surprise. Yeah. I think we're going to see some examples of this where it's going to be much longer. I mean, just a matter of time before somebody finds one 5, 10, 20 years old. Well, what is it? 100 years from now, they're going to find our GoPros on the bottom, and, and the damn thing works. Yeah. As soon as we charge the battery. <laughs> Figure out how to charge it. 
What's a battery a hundred years from now? <laughs> and here they say that purple monsters may herald a spike in jellyfish activity. Australia has mysterious technicolor purple jellyfish swimming off its shores all along without anybody noticing after one such creature previously unknown in Australia washed up in Queensland coast last week. Jellyfish scientist Lisa Ann Gershwin has received a string of reports sightings dating back to 2008 when its meter-long arms and huge purple bell. Gershwin from CSIRO, Australia's National Research Agency in Brisbane, said she's never seen anything like the specimen that washed up in the Coulomb Beach in Sunshine Coast of Queensland on Wednesday morning. Some features including arms covered in thousands of tiny plankton-eating mouths meant Gershwin could immediately determine it was a member of the, oh, again. Yeah, go for it. Thysanostoma genius. But those who live around the area are tiny and beige. This is huge. It's a vivid technicolor purple. Punk rock jellyfish. Yeah. I don't know why. This doesn't look so unusual. It's what I see in SpongeBob all the time. That's how they draw them. It's just a punk rocker. That's Gersh- all. Gershwin has some reports in German from the 19th century reporting large specimens from the same genius found in the Red Sea and near the Philippines, but says that parts she has translated so far don't mention the creatures are purple. So she suspects that this is a new species. Where there's one jellyfish, there must be more. Wouldn't that be spectacular? Can you imagine anything more amazing than a school of technicolor purple jellyfish with long oral arms? Members of the public have now contacted her regarding 10 sightings, four with photos of similar jellyfish with beaches going back to 2008. She says the big question is, are these locals that have been in Australian waters all along, or are they just starting to move there from elsewhere? If they're moving, increasing numbers, this could be a sign the ocean environment is changing. Mutant. We are certainly seeing a lot of jellyfish activity all around Australia, but whether it's a blip or a new normal, we don't know yet because it's only been a few years of intense jellyfish activity. But believe me, we're on to it. Always like their definitions of why it happened. Changes in jellyfish activity were an important indicator of the state of the environment, with spikes, always with a little quote, possibly caused by agricultural runoff, global warming, get your plug in global there, there, warming, and overfishing. What can I say? Scientists are never wrong. <clears throat> Bullshit! <laughs> this Be- is also a continuation of the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, knew this, knew that, hadn't seen it before, thought it was extinct. Yeah. All the scientists were wrong again. They, they didn't know. Here we've got something new. Discovered near the Great Lakes in our backyard, a group of amateur archaeologists searching for the remains of a Native American settlement near the town of Sheboygan on the coastal lake Huron have uncovered a large quantity of artifacts, allegedly of Norse or Viking origin, a total of 194 objects, mostly made of various metals including silver, iron, copper, and tin, were found on what could be the site of an ancient Viking trading post, controlling the Straits of Mackinac, Mackinac, I said Mackinac, it's not like a tourist, leads into Lake Michigan. The artifacts of various nature and geographic origins, sword, axes, other weapons from Scandinavia, Germanic origins, silver buttons, and a balance scale allegedly from the British Isles, hair combs and knife handles made of walrus ivory, originating from Greenland or Iceland. The presence of these goods suggests an elaborate and efficient economic system based on long-distance trade. Archaeologists have been searching the eastern coast of North America for signs of the passage of Norsemen ever since the discovery of 1960, since the site of uh, Lejeune Meadows in Newfoundland, Canada. Many of the items found in the site have suggested an elaborate network of trade existed between specific North 
Norse colonies in the American continent. Such clues include the remains of butternuts, which don't grow in any land north of the province of New Brunswick, and therefore had to be imported. Other possible Norse options were identified in 2012 in Anuk, a Tanfield Valley on Buffin Island, as well as Navgukik. <coughs> oh, easy like, for you to say. Yeah, and Willows Island and the Vajavikik Islands. And the other places in that area. Yeah, period. Exactly. Uh, this hour, the first Viking settlement discovered in the area of North American Great Lakes, and this could bring a lot of new information concerning the actual extent of the trade network on the continent. This site is strategically located to enable control of the waterways leading to both Lake Michigan and Lake Erie while enabling navigable access to the St. Lawrence Basin Atlantic Ocean. All the items already recovered have been transferred for further analysis, Department of Archaeology, the University of Michigan, which has also inherited responsibility for the site. Further research should be done over the next months to complete the survey of the site and gather all possible remaining artifacts. Okay, I'm going to put my disclaimer out here. I did not salt the area with all my <laughs> discards. I really did not, honest. And if there's any fingerprints or anything like that of mine, that's strictly coincidental. Now, it, it must not be on public land. Why are you saying that? Well, if they're turning it over to the University of Michigan, they couldn't turn it over to the University of Michigan if it were on public land. Well, if it's on public land with the... the State archaeology would have to handle it. Oh, okay. But you notice they didn't say where. No, they didn't say where. And again, I didn't do it. Near Sheboygan. <laughs> Near Sheboygan. Which we'll, we'll have to go back and check the dump area again, man. <laughs> Maybe some of that stuff we passed over. Well, that that's the thing is, what, what do you think they're going to discover? I mean, this could actually be... Say you're an antique collector from the 1800s, and you had this stuff that you had accumulated for a while. All that's left is... These artifacts that have been transplanted. Well, did you see that in the paper last week? And I think it's uh, one of our museums up north. They're getting rid of a lot of their stuff because mm -hmm. they've been collecting Collection. it for 100 years. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, what do we do with it? It's a bunch of rocks here, knickknacks there. Now, what's sort of important to the, our local history, but we've got too much. Uh, it takes time and money to catalog, maintain, preserve. And now in a quandary of how to get rid of it. And part of the, the problem was it costs you money to get rid of it because you have to go through documentation of saying that whoever gets it or buys it did it legally. Yeah. So they're between mm -hmm. a rock and a hard place. I can't afford to keep it and I can't afford to, <laughs> to get give rid it away. Of it. So the building <laughs> must burn down or something. <laughs> Don't give them any ideas. Don't say that. Yeah. I didn't say that. Well, this is interesting because we, we, we've had these discussions many times over the years. There's some. Sites, I think, up in New England where they, they have some people who are claiming that those are Viking settlements and there's still discussions in archaeology archaeology going on there. So, I just love so it. So I take it then that we may have to go back and rewrite the history books and say Columbus did not discover America? Well, if you want to go that, remember the Chinese junks that are found off the coast of California. <laughs> and they found the anchors with the, you know, the, the big round, the big, the big, round mm -hmm. with the hole in the middle with the Chinese hieroglyphics on it. Not hieroglyphics, but Greek right. to me. Yeah. It's like, okay, we've, we've been there. And again, you got to remember, this was one landmass. Yeah. So who was here first? I don't know. Who's on first? Well, I mean, you had Native Americans who were like, what, you just, you discovered what? <laughs> we knew we were here. Yeah. Now, if you go into the comments... He, uh, it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, some people are commenting that they wonder that uh, if these artifacts are going to disappear, if we'll ever see them again. Well, you go to any of them, science and industry, any of that, how much is behind the scenes? And how often does it get exposed to the light of day? 
Well, here's another another one we're putting in the not-quite-scuba category, but I just thought it was incredibly cool. I like these moonshot shot type of projects. This one is an Indiegogo fundraiser. Uh, has to do with solar roadways. Solar freaking roadways. What are they? They're solar freaking roadways. What do they want from me? Well, they're solar freaking roadways. Okay, so actually this time, what is it? It's technology that replaces all roadways, parking lots, sidewalks, driveways, tarmacs, bike paths, and outdoor recreation surfaces with solar panels. And not just lifeless, boring solar panels. Smart, microprocessing, interlocking, hexagonal solar units. No more useless asphalt and concrete just sitting there baking in the sun, needing to be repaved, and filling with potholes that ruin your axle alignment on your sweet ride, bro. These are intelligent solar panels. Replace the panel at a time if damaged or malfunctioning. They're covered with a new tempered glass material that has been designed and tested to meet all impact, load, and traction requirements. Oh, and did I mention that they're also solar panels? They generate electricity. They generate capital. They pay for themselves, and they keep paying more because we're not going to run out of sun for like 15 billion years. That lowers the cost of energy, unlike those bills in the mail that keep going up. And it's clean energy. Everyone can theoretically drive an electric car with no pollution and a minimal carbon footprint. Can you imagine how good our cities would smell? How much healthier we'd all be? Excuse me, young man. Am I being led to believe that this thing is some sort of thing? Yes, it's a thing. A real thing. And clean energy is only its primary function. Grab a notepad because this is where it gets interesting. For those in the north, the panels use energy they collect to power elements to keep the surface temperature a few degrees above freezing. They're heated. No more ice and snow on roads causing traffic delays, accidents, and injury. No more shoveling your driveway and sidewalk. No salt corroding your car or wasting tax money on snow removal. And you can ride your bike or drive your motorcycle all year round. Whoa! Every panel has a series of LED lights on the circuit board that can be programmed to make landscape designs, warning signs, parking lot configurations, whatever. These roads never have to have lanes repainted, just reprogrammed to whatever we choose or whatever works best. Imagine a highway road lighting up ahead of you. How much safer it would be to drive at night. There'd be improved visibility for pilots landing on solar landing strips. Imagine walking onto a solar recreation court and choosing a sports configuration. Want to play basketball? Cool. Kids want to play hopscotch in Foursquare? Awesome. Ball hockey? Done. And with LED LED lights under your feet, it's gonna look like freaking Tron out there. But real, because this is the real world. Whoa. But these panels are also pressure sensitive, so they can detect when large debris like branches or boulders have fallen onto the road, or if an animal is crossing. It can warn drivers with LED text to slow down for an obstruction. I'm very, you know, environmentally conscious. Good, because solar roadways use as much recycled material in their production as possible. Plus, the roadways have two channels that form what's called a cable corridor that runs concurrently with the roadways themselves. One part houses electrical cables, meaning power lines, data lines, fiber optics, and high-speed internet, which replaces the need for telephone poles and hanging wires that can be damaged during storms causing power outages or become extremely dangerous if severed either as fallen live wires or buried cables. The other channel captures and filters storm water and melted snow, moving them either to a treatment facility or treating them on-site, greatly decreasing the amount of pollution that enters our soil, lakes, rivers, and oceans. I'm kind of broke, bruh. Yeah, no kidding. The economy is in the toilet. Do you realize how many thousands of jobs this could create and sustain? Talk about a hypodermic adrenaline shot to the heart of the manufacturing and infrastructure sector. And it pays for itself. They're solar freaking roadways. Um, I have concerns about the future. Is this thing even possible? I told you. Yes. Solar roadway technology was invented by engineering couple Julie and Scott Broussard in 2006. Two of the sweetest people in the world who met when they were three and four years old. Listen to these two. Hi, we're Scott and Julie Broussard, inventors of solar roadways. We met in the 1960s when we were three and four years old. These wonderful, intelligent people want to begin manufacturing a technology that can power the future of the 
whole freaking planet. They were awarded a contract from the Federal Highway Administration to build two prototypes, which are now complete. They're too humble and wonderful to yell at you over the internet, so I'm gonna do it. You need to know about this technology. You need to get behind it. You need to share it with everyone you know, because this is actually happening. Whoa! For the first time in human history, we have the technology to do what nature has done since the beginning of life on this planet. Harness the power of the sun to fuel our pursuits. And this isn't about filling a field with solar panels wasting land. Our roads and parking lots are just sitting there, reflecting sunlight and absorbing heat, not doing nothing for nobody. Which I guess means it's doing something for somebody, but not very much. It's time for an upgrade. We have to make the changes we want to see in the world. The FHWA has provided the startup funds to create the prototypes, but now a grassroots effort of concerned and inspired people can push this project into independent production. If we vote with our money for projects we believe in, we can create a future where our society is driven by new ideas. It need only begin with private driveways and parking lots. Once the ball gets rolling, it'll create a momentum all of its own. Let's put our roads to work. Not to mention, it's finally gonna look like the freaking future out there! City streets, driveways, sidewalks, and schoolyards glowing with LED panels? Are you kidding? Imagine street festivals, imagine Mardi Gras, imagine the Movement Electronic Music Festival in downtown Detroit, but all the concrete and hard plaza has been replaced with pressure-sensitive panels with multicolored lights in them. I would lose my mind. And not to mention, the freaking solar panels! It has been estimated that if all the roads in America were converted to solar roadways, the country would generate three times as much energy as it currently uses. Think about that. An abundance of clean energy. So quickly, in review, love biking? Solar roadways. Hate high energy bills? Solar roadways. Love the movie Tron? Solar roadways. Worried about the economy? Solar roadways. Love sports? Solar roadways. Scared of hitting moose? Solar roadways. Hate gasoline prices? Solar roadways. Love helping developing countries? Solar roadways. Hate tar fumes? Solar roadways. Love recycling? Solar roadways. Hate winter driving? Solar roadways. Hate shoveling snow? Solar roadways. Love clean air? Solar roadways. Need a job? Solar roadways. Want to save this planet and make it sustainable for your kids and all future generations of life who can look back and say, hey, at least they invented solar freaking roadways. Please follow the link to Indiegogo.com. Meet Scott and Julie Brusaw. Check out their work and get informed. This isn't just donating. It's an investment in a real future. Let's do this. Because finally, it's possible. Will I lose? Thank you. So they're only asking for $1 million. And how much do you think they got? This is through a... This is Indiegogo. Indiegogo. Which is like okay. Kickstarter. One point six million with twenty two days left. It started on April twenty first. They've they've gotten one point six million committed to them in seven days. Yeah, they what really took off. They were doing pretty decent. They were like three hundred thousand or so, and then uh, oh, I'm gonna uh, was it Sulu from Star Trek? Okay. Uh, he posted it on his Facebook page, which is how I saw it. And from that point on, it's just gone crazy. And then everybody likes a winner. So once you once you hit the funding, it always seems like it goes really well. But uh, I, I spent a lot of time looking at what they're doing. And these are just one of those cool projects you hope works. Well, I'm curious about the manufacturing aspect of each of the hexagons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's see if they show it here. Uh, yeah, see, there's they, they've actually got a prototype that they've done. Uh, it's glass. Each of these weighs about 100 pounds, about 120 pounds, I think, is what they said. So when you drop your bottle of beer on the pavement, it doesn't crack? Nope. They're the rated pit. for 250,000 pounds. Per square inch? What? Uh, I don't know what they say. Was it per square inch or square foot? But what they did is when they did the original engineering for it, uh, they were thinking about 80,000 pounds because that's what the, the roads were. And then then every time they went, they had to increase it because somebody was putting something heavier on the roads. 
uh, and up by them because they're in, I believe, nor- northern Idaho. Uh, they said that you can get permits for up to 250000 Wow. So what else are they offering? $100 gets you a thank you video. Yep. Glass solar pendants are sold out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the solar pendant was uh, uh, some recycled material they had from some of the early stuff. Yeah, that sold out. Uh, you get a T-shirt. You get a tote bag. You got coffee mugs, uh, bumper stickers. But, yeah, when you start getting up into the higher, uh, one's a personalized graphic for you. and they'll your, So you huh. take your parking lot. You send them a photo, and they'll show. You, they'll do a design of what your parking lot will look like with the solar panels on it. Uh, Five hundred dollars gets you your name on the parking lot. That's the next phase. What they've done is they had some. Uh, let's see if they, they talk about it in here. Uh, they had some money from the U.S. Federal Highway Administration to do some research. But the problem with that, the the funds they got, it wasn't enough for them to be able to set up manufacturing, which is what the million dollars is supposed to go for. So everything up till now has been a small batch prototyping. You know, they're they're paying mm-hmm. a company to go and make the glass panels, and they they were cutting solar panels down to fit underneath, and they uh, did the LEDs into it. So this is to get to set up a. a small type of manufacturing to be able to to put it in so that $300 gets you a personal uh, not the, uh, the graphic the name of the parking lot it gets your uh, name etched on one of the uh, first uh, implementations so there's 396 covers so far they've got 205 out of 396 have been claimed now for a thousand dollars they'll actually send you a four inch version of the glass and those are individually numbered they have uh, 87 of 1,000 been claimed. And for $10,000, you get a 7-inch hexagon glass. wonder what you could get, you know, what it would cost you for one of their full-size working units. Now that just would to be, buy one. That'd be good. See, they have, they've been very reluctant to tell you what the total cost is. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how they interconnect it for transfer of power. What does your power grid structure look like? Yeah. Where's your connections? What's your support system? Uh, where do you transfer the power? Since obviously you're talking DC, not AC. Yeah. So you're limited on your transfer of power. Yeah. So and, and they support. talk about that if you go to their website here in this photo that we're looking at. They show a tractor sitting on the panels. Off to the right here is a grating. That grating is your drainage. Mm-hmm. And it's segmented so there's drainage and there's also an access area. And then it's another one. They show him wiring it up. So he's actually down in here and that's where all your interconnects are coming in yeah and if you look at these holes is those actually they have a tool they put on to them and they turn them and these sections lift right on up that's really neat yeah he's an engineer his wife is a is a psychologist and she mentioned it to him and said hey you know why can't you do something like that the first thing he did is he poo-pooed it saying well that's completely ridiculous and then he just started doing some notes and jotting mm-hmm. some ideas down. And, you know, he kind of tried to disprove it. And the more he did, the more they got into it. So they spent the last five or six years uh, working on this. Wow. Well, yeah. you consider, Not scuba related, but really neat. Yeah, when you consider the amount of yardage taken up by mm-hmm. parking lots, driveways. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, uh, when it's asphalt, it's reflecting heat. I mean, heat, if you it's... did nothing but sidewalks in some communities, yeah. if that really worked, mm-hmm. that would be quite uh, well, interesting. They, they were saying that if you did all the roads in the U.S., you'd have more than three times the amount of power that is needed in the world. I, I hear them <laughs> say that, but I want to see the, yeah. the dynamics for transferring yeah. that power. Again, if you go to their website, we'll have a link in the show notes. He actually does, shows you his calculations. Cause they, and that's what the, per, the point of this uh, initial test was, is they did, he says all his numbers are very conservative because these are panels that are just sitting flat. They're not mm-hmm. being focused towards the sun. 
So everything was based on Idaho. Yeah. And he's like a less than an hour away from the Canadian border. And he says, so you're going to get much better as you go farther south. Farther south so yeah. Florida. So all his numbers are based on very conservative estimates accordingly. But that's what they're doing. That's what the million dollars is for is to do the next step, which is they've got a parking lot in the town there. That is to finish up their contract with the, the federal government. Wow. And that's supposed to be done by July of this year. It would make a little bit of sense, though. If it's like that Telsa station we have right up here, mm-hmm. they for the battery-powered cars. Yeah. If you had parking lots mm-hmm. like that and then had the stations there that would directly take that power. Mm-hmm. But, again, you're going to have storage grid. You have to have storage batteries. So Yeah. yeah. And that's it one of the things that he admits in there that they really don't have a good way of doing it. Uh, because you're going to have to tr- translate, uh, you have to change the power. Like you said, it's DC, mm-hmm. so it has to be converted to AC. So some of the things that he mentions is that maybe you would have, you know, street lights might go DC in these types of environments. Uh, you might have some houses who would then be pulling off the DC. Uh, they talk about, you know, there still has to be things worked out, like who gets the the money for it. If it's on your property and you put it in your driveway, that's your power, provided you paid for the the units. But on the road, you know, is the power company, like in our case, is AEP going to go and help subsidize it? It'll be interesting. And again, if they were to do it on large scale, the cost should go down. The key item here is keep the government out of it. <laughs> Make it a Bad commercial chance. venture and, and keep it the hell out of the government. Well, you think about it, if you did it right, you could keep it out of the government's hands only because, you know, it would it would be a cost savings. So right now you look at what's a major cost to the, the government, and that's infrastructure. You know, we've got highways that, you know, we, we spent a lot of money building, but we didn't spend a lot of money maintaining, and they need to be redone. So, you know, we've probably got over a trillion dollars in road repairs that need to be done in the next 10 to 20 years. And bridges, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you went and you strategically said, okay, roads that we're going to need to do, get this done. You know, because they've got the, the water handling is built into the road system. You've got the lights. Uh, you know, what, what I like about it is I, I've always been one of those people that I, I prefer to spend a little bit more money for something that lasts a little bit longer. So. Are we actually going on a tangent here and doing something that's constructive? When naysayers here, it's like, hey, this is good. Squirrel. I'm diving. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, these are the type of things I get excited about. It's kind of like, you know, to me, this is up there with going to Mars, doing a project like this. And it seems to be practical. This seems practical. That's what scares me. Yeah. It might actually work. So, yeah, that was a, you know, kind of a reverse soapbox or kind of soapbox or a little bit of a distraction. So let's go ahead and take a look. This next one is some photos of the week. And by the way, we don't get any money for that. So if you're wondering why you had an eight-minute commercial, that wasn't. You just thought it was cool. Uh, this one's from it was a dive photo guide. They've they frequently put photos, underwater photos, in their website. And this one is Jerome Kim. And some beautiful photos. That's some shrimp photos. Macro shots. Squids. Clownfish eggs. I I like especially the juvenile hairy frogfish. Only a mother could love that face. <laughs> and did you see the the goby with parasites? Is that what that is on it? Yeah. If if that guy were a little bigger, look at those freaking teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And we're talking how many hundreds per square meter do we have down there by the piers? <laughs> if those guys looked like that and were a little larger, that wouldn't be a lot of fun to dive down there. No. Is is that is that really how uh, how big they are? What, the gobies? Yeah. That's a small goby there. That's not very large. But you see the parasite on? Yeah, it, uh, it almost looked like a wing. Or some kind of springs or something on. Attached them with a sucker. Yeah. Here's another tangent. Did you see the uh, when Animal Planet had a, a movie? What was uh, Killer Lampreys? 
Oh, yes. Did you see him put that sucker to the side of it? No, no pun intended. Yeah. Put it on his cheek? Yeah. No, he didn't. It wasn't his cheek. It was his neck. Yeah. And then he couldn't get the damn thing off. Yeah. And then what he did, it's like, that didn't take long to burrow into my skin. <laughs> well, duh. I was amazed at how many good actors they had in the thing. And overall, it really was bad. <laughs> kind of like the bad scuba joke. Squirrel! Okay, here's some potentially cool scuba gear. Can't figure out is this a government project or a civilian, but it's over there in China. They're well, one if it's the, government one the same. in China, it'll work. Oh no. It's one in the same. No, I, I got the wrong link. I did it again. I got it good. Do you got the link? Oh yeah, man. That's cool looking underwater glider. I, it looks like a freaking torpedo with gun cords. Oh, I see what I did. Ooh. It does, man. And that's my color. Yeah, I would have as I overrode it. It was uh someday I'll figure out how to use a keyboard. Yeah, yeah, so what, what, what did you override it with? No, I didn't override it with that. I overrode it with the same one. Uh, the high-end underwater glider, a Chinese self-developed autonomous underwater vehicle, has finished a sea trial recently. The yellow torpedo-like device is 1.8 meters in length, a diameter of 0.3 meters, and weighs about 70 kilograms. The device is developed by scientific research team in Tianjin University. The glider can go 1,500 meters underwater. Its maximum voyage is 1,000 kilometers. It can work 30 days continuously. Can you say spy? Sure. Of course, we would say underwater mapping for geological purposes. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, someone, did you take a look at the other pictures? Look on the no, bottom part. It's neat. Is, it, is this what the ones there? Yeah, the body of it. Yeah, it opens up. With like a bow mark. We need one of those for mapping purposes. Yeah, underwater mapping. They don't give any uh, cost for this, do they? They don't. It must have been cheap, though, because it was self-developed. Yeah, sure. Is that like intelligent computers or something? Yeah. And then here for the video of the week. Has a massive underwater base been discovered off the coast of Malibu, California? In a story that is blowing up around the internet, an alleged massive underwater base has been found in Malibu, California and Google Earth. This funky looking plateau structure is about 1.4 miles wide by 2.5 miles long. It's about 7 miles from land. The structure looks to have a ceiling that is about 500 feet thick, which would supposedly make it nuclear bombproof. You can see what looks to be its 600 feet tall pillars holding it up out front. Others believe that this isn't an underwater base at all. It's just a simple land formation that happens to look like some sort of underwater base from the right angle in Google Maps. Basically, it looks something like this, only covered with a bunch of sand. Anomalies like this can also happen due to the way ocean mapping works, and the inability of it to get a perfect picture of everything. What do you think? <laughs> Those not old enough, Twilight Zone maybe? Yeah. You know, I'm looking at it, I'm trying to say it, it, it kind of does look like uh, like an artifact. Well, what about the structures we looked at last time in Russia? Yeah. Those could the have been, you know, bigger than the pyramids. It's like, well, what's that? Uh-huh. Nature? It could be natural. Yeah. <clears throat> Bullshit! 1.35 miles wide by 2.45 miles long, and it's 7 miles from land. How deep? Well, the ceiling's 500 feet thick, so... 
isn't that an opening here? That's what it looks like to me. So it kind of does. <clears throat> well, we can go that deep. Somebody ought to go and take a look. Maybe that's the housing where all the UFOs go under and then hide yeah. and scooch out. Well, let's take a look. You know, I'll bet there's one of those in Lake Michigan. Yeah, it's it's ventilation for the the underwater base. Look at all the. I, I was I was looking at this, and now on the side you have all the other all the UFO links. all the other UFO links. Well, that 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 needs to be our other podcast. Now wait a minute. There actually was some interesting slatings a couple weeks ago. Well, actually, that was 1994 up in South Haven. I had researched that one for those who care about that thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the triangular type, those were the ones that actually caught on radar out of Chicago. Well, didn't they catch radar of the ones two weeks ago? Not sure. Are the you one talking? I sent you met the message about. But that I... was based on the 1994. No, this was this was a recent one. This was a recent sighting from two weeks ago. Because I was afraid you wouldn't be around anymore. Ah, I told you about that last time I was flying towards the evening. Uh-oh. Nice summer day. No. I come out across the lake, like taking off on uh, 2-8, right over the shoreline where we look for the bomber. Mm-hmm. And I look left, and there's this object going like this in the shallows. And it's like, mm-hmm. what the hell is that? I, I tell you about that. Remember you told us about that. And it's like, I'm watching it, and it's, it's one of those, okay, I'm seeing it, but your mind is not right. saying, what is that? Other than, that's not normal. Yeah. And it's like, I'm mentally saying, well, it's not a group of fish. It's not. By the time I turned, because I can't just look out the window all the time, <laughs> I turned. I couldn't find a darn thing. But it was going 90 degrees to the shoreline. I wish I could describe It's like and I had my camera, but I didn't take any freaking pictures. You know what we need to do is we need to mount some GoPro cameras on uh, Max and my wings uh, and the yeah. wings. But that still puzzles me what that was because I couldn't find it. It was going faster than I was. I turned. Squirrel! Yeah, we do that a little bit. Okay. Well, I think that does it for Scuba in the News, Not in the News, Not Scuba, and all the other that we, we covered. So I think we are to the time of the show where we talk about last week's dives. I think I think we had quite a few people get wet last week. I mean, like it's about time. I think this is almost summer. We did have, what, freezing weather two weeks ago. We had frost. Yeah. And I think, what, we've had guys on the Rockaway. We've had them on the Havana. We've been out there in the Muskegon, the Breakwater in Michigan City. Uh, Niles River, or the St. Joe River in Niles, and up here in Benton Harbor. Max Rec. Max Rec. Oh, yeah, I forgot that one. And then we've been out to Magician today. Wow. Uh, we passed over. We didn't really dive it, but we did some survey work on the clay bank. Well, that's true. Yeah, we could have, but it was a very foggy day. Yeah. I we could have got in the water, but if we'd have got a, away from the line, you couldn't find your way back to the boat because you couldn't see nothing. Yeah, I was afraid to leave the boat unattended. Yeah. I was afraid to put divers in the water for fear that if they surfaced somewhere, they wouldn't find the boat. Yeah, if you didn't have a compass, you would have not gotten back. And that, and that was because of the fog? Fog, yep. 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 Warm air on that cold lake. Speaking of cold lake, did you see the photos of Lake Superior? Still, still has still ice. Has Ice. Yeah, they had the two uh, girls in uh, bikinis out there. Reasonably tushes. Two girls in bikinis. Yep. So we have been getting wet. Uh, the water temperature is still chilly. But today's, I think we didn't get thermocline till about 20 feet. 20 feet on an inland lake. And then yeah. I ended up... With no hood. Well, I took my hood off because I was too warm. And uh, I, had, I had three fingers on. I really didn't need them. I could have had my grubbing gloves. And then I went out to, to recover the buoy. You both dive and dry? I was in a semi-dry. My neck seal leak, but what the hell, I was warm. But yeah, it was... Uh, the river's been nice, because I, I hit... Oh, yeah, that's right. I dove uh, Whirlpool Basin and did two jobs at the piers, or for the harbor, for well, boat work. 
with all the sunshine we've had, what's the cook buoy showing? And it was uh, about 52 the other day. Okay. We back? Yeah, we're back. We never left. Yeah, it's, it's almost like a time warp. Amazing what a mute button will do when you start pausing things. So where are we at, guys? We were diving. Yeah, we talked about diving. Oh, yeah, temperature. You were looking up for the lake yeah. temperature based on the new buoys. We were going to check the new buoy because I thought the temp would be going up. And sure enough, the Cook Plant buoy is sitting surface temperature at 60 degrees. Wow. Bottom temp is probably like 45 last time I checked. So you're going to start to see the thermocline. And it's... Uh, Curious what it is on the bottom. Got to be there. All right. So that's current right there. I know what that is. Wind speed, wind gust, air pressure. It's not a lot. No, we're looking here. Well, they used to have it by the uh, depth. Yeah, we, we need. We need to. I need to fix the link because these are all. Well, we do know it's getting warmer. There we go. Sixty degrees. There it so is. here it is. There it is. It's on the bottom. Oh, and here's the. Yeah, it's not the plot we were looking for, but <laughs> this is this is not. I the... like the numbers. Yeah. Hot, cold. Okay, so all right. So what's the temps? Look at the different depths. Well, here they're showing. Yeah, this is showing at eight fifty p.m. Yeah, so at eight eight fifty. So at forty three feet. That's current data, not temperature. Yeah, that's kind of uh, all current data. Uh, so they they they're measuring current at depth too. I believe they are. That's nice. I didn't realize they were doing that. That would have, that'd be help, helpful for us figuring out visibility. Yeah, would be for an upwelling maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you know, if the current's the same as surface. Did that change totally from what we used to have? Yeah, they, they've laid the format out differently, so... Yeah, I'll have to... Well, this is the NOAA site. We'll have to find that other site. Yep. Okay. Oh, my comment was going to be also that when we're down in Michigan City, there's another one of those on the dock over by the DNR getting ready to put out in Michigan City. Oh, up And there. South Haven is having one put out and sponsored by Skillheaders and others to help pay for it. Oh. So we should have three, South Haven, us, and Michigan City, which gives us the ability to trend up wellings, visibility maybe based on temperature, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. currents. Yep. yep. So this could be very interesting for us this year. Great stuff. I know we've been able to use this one last year, or past few years, to predict what the visibility is going to be on MaxRec, and we've been pretty much right on. Maybe what we need to do is subscribe to that data and then make our own kind of a chart, chart. based on what yeah. we're seeing. You know, wh wh where should we dive? What should you dive today? Or best dive? Yeah. So I understand that Bob's got a full boat for this weekend? Yes, I was just talking to him, and that was the pause button there. Uh, yeah, he's got a full house for Sunday. I think it's, uh, it was finding out where Jim had his boat at, and is he available? And uh, so I'll find out what Larry's doing, so Larry is doing. Maybe he's available Sunday, and uh, maybe even Scarlett. Now, if I can borrow a truck, I can drop my boat in. Maybe I'll just drop it in the lake and leave it, you know, more. Uh, Leave it at a dock for a few days and pay the docking fee, and then we can get out and do some diving this weekend because it looks like it might be a pretty good weekend again. Yeah. As, as a side note, remember the, uh, not a Boston whaler that used to have at the marina, names we won't talk about. You know that boat that used to be available for us? We don't use it up north for diving. Yeah. You know, no, no longer is there. I was inquiring about its uh, rental possibilities. Uh-huh. Caroline Skiff. The Skiff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's no longer in existence. It sounds like someone started a fire in the middle of the boat. You, you mean like a, to roast marshmallows type uh, of fire? I think it was probably something different than roasting marshmallows because uh, the insurance people weren't real happy, but uh, it sounds like somebody deliberately threw gasoline in the middle of the boat and let it. Uh, hmm. A little revenge? So it, was, it was in that side of the river, so I wouldn't. 
Well, leave my boat unattended in certain places. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty bad. Um, that'll make it hard to rent in that uh, particular location. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gotta be there, there's a number of slips available there, and I have never been interested in doing yeah. it because the security is kind of lax. Right. Yeah. Anything yeah. you have that you want to keep, I probably wouldn't leave it in my boat. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that happens just like at home. It can on the water. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we've got quite a bit. So now, uh, did you do Michigan City this last weekend? Last weekend, yes. So how was the viz there? Uh, I did good video of Larry finding some treasure. Uh, we did the ski do. We probably had 20, 25 foot. Okay. But the amazing item is zero fish other than far gobies. Really? really? Yeah. Hmm. Which normally is not for that time of year. Maybe normal, but good viz, no vegetation, uh, crayfish claws on the bottom. That's it. Huh. You didn't even see a catfish or a carp. Because they, because normally they're shadowing. They're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So this was odd. Yeah. We'll have to keep an eye on it. So if we're going, if we're hitting that again this weekend, then we, we can see if it, if it changes. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what fishermen always say is that, you know, there's, there's still fish down there. Well, today over in Magician, though, we were finding, uh, pike. Pike, which normally you don't see. And I'm, I'm finding, uh, bluegills. Bluegills that was what? Six, eight inches easy? Yeah. Dead on the bottom. Now, I, I found three like that that were, I mean, it's like very hefty. I'd like to have maybe explored them a little bit, see if I could determine why they were dead. Uh, I fall, saw a couple of just fish heads where someone had, or something had eaten them, and there were just some fish heads laying down there. Uh, I did find a turtle. <coughs> Not an alligator snapper. Not an so alligator snapper. Dave no, is listening. No. It wasn't an alligator so snapper. So he's safe. He's safe. This time. As far as he knows. Yes. We did <clears throat> did find a few bottles, though. Yeah, we got nice milk and uh, a yeah. very nice crowbar. <laughs> yeah. And the obligatory golf balls, plural. Yeah. And, now, you said and milk. Is that was it a fairly embossed? Or? Uh, no, this is the plain Jane. This is the plain Jane milk. Okay. Uh, which it was embossed. Yeah, it was well, embossed. But, but the, the plate is empty. Uh -huh. It just said quart, <clears throat> quart liquid or quart milk. So that means but there was, was no specific a, dairy name on a it. A more recent bottle than, or actually older. Well, sometimes the older or ones. Or they only had you had to have so many bottles before they would give you a plate with your extra information. And then if you had a boxcar order, uh, then you could get extra information that would have logos and stuff. Okay. Now, is it possible that that clear plate was silk screened or no? No, not on that one. Okay. But he's got a nice Listerine bottle. He yeah, I got a, a Lambert Pharmacal Corporation Listerine bottle, which looks like it might be somewhere between 1900 and 1920. Nice. And i got to do a little more research on that. I just took a quick look. And then a Terre Haute, Indiana Bottling Company bottle. I like the fins, so he found a matching set of fins. Yeah. Damn. Matching set. Matching set. I saw now, how one. How do you lose? I, I, I saw <laughs> one and I grabbed boat? it and swam a little further, and sure enough, there was another one laying there. Now, how long were they? Were they like little? No, toy these fins? were nice. Yeah. This they, was they nice. Were, ones. They were full size fins. Huh. Uh, they had, had some zebras on them. They had some zebras growing they, on they, them. So they, they had been like Jolson written on the bottom. Is that what they. No. no. Jolson has big feet, I, I, I believe. Somebody said that. So, yeah. And uh, so. Bullshit! <laughs> I found a mask, but again, the strap part was broke, and that's why they lost it. So, and you you kept the wooden looked like a croquet ball, big one. Yeah, croquet a big ball. wooden ball. Oh wow! I found baseballs, tennis balls. That's like, what the heck is going on? Well, this is like they're, yeah. they're playing on the lake, they, or do they do it? With it? Could they be out in the ice and have just goofed around and then? Uh, no, it was in the yeah. shallow part. Yeah, it was. The, chances are, people were playing with the balls. They might have used the croquet ball because it would have yeah. floated originally. You know, yeah. but I don't once know, it got soaked, for a little bit. Well, it's a wooden ball. It would have floated unless it got soaked, but it, eventually it went down. So 
That'll make a nice, I'll, I'll drop that in some boiled linseed oil and let it soak up and dry out. And it'll make a nice yeah. mantelpiece, polish it up. Yeah, found some nice lures, uh, crayfish lures, which surprised yeah. me. Huh. So it's Just pretty spot, nice. Spot I'll go back to. I told you about that one lure I found at Little Pawpaw. It really surprised me. No. Remember that one? And it's like, and it's like I see this lure, and it's a foot-long, foot-long lure. And I'm thinking, what are they trying to catch with this foot-long lure? And it was a freaking baby alligator lure. And it's like, yeah, what are you fishing out mm-hmm. there with an alligator lure that's a foot-long in that little lake? I'm thinking that somebody's son said, Daddy, I want to fish with the alligator lure. And he just threw it on and said, yeah, here, go for it. I hope so, because I hate to think there's something out there eating out one for alligators. But, you know, actually, he's probably trying to catch scuba divers. <laughs> that got Throw my attention, though. I'm still curious about that. Now we're going to try to get wet tomorrow and see what we can come up with. Another inland lake dive. Yeah, down towards Kalamazoo. We'll see what it's going to be like. Had rain for a couple of days, they said, down there. Yeah, not a lot of here. wind, so hopefully we'll have some viz. Because yeah, we just The river, some... forget it. I uh, yeah. had six inches in the six inches viz in the river, uh, the basin, six inches. But I did find stuff there, too, though. I can't yeah. complain. Got yeah, well, nice... We, we, we've had rain on and off for the last... Probably twice in the last week. So. Yeah, but nothing really hard. No. No hard rains. No, you know, create a lot of runoff. So. so if you're not out there getting wet and it's already summer, what's your freaking excuse? <laughs> the water's warming up. Yeah, Find the thermocline. Said by people who uh, don't have young kids in school enrolled in everything possible. Not That's anymore. That's probably true. Yeah, still, it's Bender not Dundad out yet. got the t-shirt and I don't need any more. School's not out yet. I still got my, my daughter this weekend. Uh, band is playing for the graduation ceremony. And then that kind of does it. So I'm hoping. I may try and get. I'm going to try and get out this weekend. I don't know if it will actually happen. But I, I think my gear has gone beyond turning to dust. It's like fossilized. The only way I can explain it, not disintegrating. Well, the only chance you got is to, when you get rid of it, deep six it in the real heavy sediment. So when the archaeologist a thousand years from now lick this up, I want to hear what, if, it'd be nice to understand what they're going to say about it. Yeah. Membrane of a human suit or something. Yeah. Well, let's see. We, we uh, let's, let's go head on over. we got some stuff to plug. Uh, as always, you can see us on our website, www.scubaobsessed.com, which is remarkably out of date. <laughs> so I've got to get that updated. You can also go to diveswmup.com for the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. Check out our shipwreck page and see what's going on around the area. And don't forget to uh, look at our membership page. We're certainly accepting memberships, offering 25, actually it's over 25 free air fills now, and donations are greatly accepted. We've got some new areas. We want to get some new buoys up. Um, We've got the clay banks. We've got to get marked, and hopefully we can get a marker on that in the next couple weeks. Now, what was the last dive shop we covered? It's been a couple weeks since we we talked about one. Was it SAS? I believe we talked about SAS. Yeah, so we've talked about SAS. So the next one up on the list would be uh, Divers Incorporated out of Ann Arbor. Uh, phone number is 734-971-7770. This is Rich Senewick from Divers Incorporated, and you're listening to Scuba Obsessed. Thank you, Rich. So, yeah, Rich uh, Senewick, is, who also has a Diver Sync podcast that you'll want to take a listen to if you're listening to us. And uh, he was gracious enough to donate to the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. A uh, couple of, how many, ref- you get a couple air yeah. refills from Rich. Two free fills, maybe more if you stop in more often. Yeah, you have to bug them. 
but he's, he's got a nice website uh, going there. Let's see, what do we got his uh, location here? He is in, uh, if you go to his Ann Arbor, Michigan store, that's at 3380 Washtenaw Avenue. Washtenaw Avenue. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Almost downtown. Easy to get to off of US 23. Yep. And the website is www.diversinc.com. And if you ever want to go uh, hunting megalodons, uh, he has some really nice trips down to the Cooper River in South Carolina, yeah. down in Charleston. Yeah, we've, we've done that one. A lot one. of fun. I've done that one a couple times. I need to do that a little bit. Not just a little bit. I need to do that again. We need to take our own boat down there <laughs> and stay by the barge. Make, make, make Tom cry. Uh, what we did do, adding to the dive, to the uh, website, is if you go to the menu, the membership item underneath that, we've got sponsor scuba dive shops. We've got a map that overlays all the shops so you can see which ones are closest to you. So you can support your local dive shop. And we've got the lower peninsula of Michigan pretty well covered. And we got the key dive shop up there in Sheboygan. And that's with a C, not an S. Yeah, Sheboygan. The, the S Sheboygan is Wisconsin. The C Sheboygan is in Michigan. Yep, on Huron. So there you go. You need to get your membership into the Southwest Michigan Underwater Preserve. We would greatly appreciate it. We need the money. Get some buoys in the water. That's exactly it. How's the dive club doing? Did we have we talked about them? Because we did we have a meeting since last time? That was last week, but I don't know if we remember if we talked about it or not. About the only major item for the meeting is we are going to reschedule the club steak fry and dive. Yeah. It'll still be in August, but it won't be the original date, so I'll keep posted on the calendar. And we'll either do, uh, people have the option to either dive it, we're going to do another drift, uh, drift dive is what we're thinking about. And if you'd like to bring your kayak instead of dive, that's even better. Because you can be our safety watchers. And we can hand stuff up to you that you have to haul to shore well, for us. that's true, too. That's <laughs> also true. Maybe that's a, a nice sidebar item you could do for us. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see. We got anything else? I think that kind of uh, does it for the plugs. Can I push the button one more time? I think you can push a button. <clears throat> Bullshit! You think it's was it for the for the plugs? Yeah, it's called a new toy. And yeah, we're yeah. gonna really abuse it for a while. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Darren set up a soundboard, and now that we're all together, I can play with the soundboard and add some sound effects to the show. So, if you get tired of the sound effects, send your complaints to Darren. <laughs> the show at scoobobsessed.com. Uh, so I think we're to that time of the part of the show. Okay, that means I push this button. Thought it was supposed to be wailing and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> the gnashing of teeth? Panic screams? Okay. Uh, that's close. Okay, a scuba diver walks into a bar and pauses. At the other end of the bar, there's this guy with a big orange head. Just kind of sitting there, moaning into his drink. So the man asks the bartender, Say, what's up with this guy with a big orange head? And the bartender says, It's an interesting story. Buy him a drink and maybe he'll tell it to you. So the man walks over, introduces himself, and offers to buy a round. The guy with the big orange head says, Yeah, I bet you do want to know the story, huh? To which the man replies, Sure, if I don't, if you don't mind. The man with the big orange head sighs and says, You know, I've gone over it in my mind a million times. Basically, it's like this. I was walking along the beach one day when I stubbed my toe on something. I looked down and there's this antique brass lamp. I picked it up, dusted it off a little bit, when all of a sudden this enormous genie pops out. The genie thunders, you've released me from my 10,000 year imprisonment, and I am in your debt. I will grant you three wishes as a token of my gratitude. The man in the bar is agape. The guy with the big orange head continues. So I said, well, okay, well, my first wish is to be fantastically wealthy. The genie says, your wish is granted. 
And all of a sudden, I have rings on my fingers and a crown on my head, and my wallet is full of money and a dozen ATM cards and the deed to a mansion in the hills. I mean, I was loaded. So I said, amazing. Okay, for my next wish, I wish to be married to the most beautiful woman in the world. The genie says, your wish is granted. In the ocean parts and out walks this gorgeous woman with beautiful dress. She takes my hand, I fall in love, and the genie marries us right there. It was incredible. The genie booms, you have one wish remaining. The man with the big orange head paused, sips his beer, and he says, now you want to know? This may be where I went wrong. I wish for a big orange head. Yeah. Probably wasn't the best wish <laughs> in the world. <laughs> we need one for moaning and gnashing of teeth. We gotta have more more buttons to the sound effects board. Uh. I I think we're done for the day, Darren. <laughs> I think you have exceeded our expectations for the bad scuba joke of the week. Okay. So on that note, until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Bullshit. Bullshit.